When uh, I came to faith, there was a passage in Scripture that got my attention right away. And, I mean, I was reading through the four Gospels, and this passage, I mean, many passages stood out, but there was one in the book of Mark that stood out, and it's, it's one that we're so familiar with, the Beth Messiah, because we say it every week. But turn with me to Mark 12, if you would, Mark chapter 12. And I remember, as a new believer, just reading this and thinking to myself, well, that is really challenging, uh, as many things in the Gospels are. You know, Mark 12 is a long chapter. I'm not going to be able to read the whole chapter. I don't want to take anything out of context, but it's just very difficult to, you know, read the whole chapter because I'm not really speaking on the entire chapter. There's a section of the chapter I'm speaking on, but you know that when we study the Bible, you want to take the immediate context into consideration and then the wider context and all those issues, but we just, at this point, I just want to hone in here on something. So we come down to Mark 12, you know, if you go down like towards verses 1 to 28, Yeshua has this uh, discussion with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He answers them. And then we come to about he's, how God's the God of the living and the dead. And then we come up to verse 29 and 30 and 31. And this was the text, you know, that really got my attention as a new believer that I thought to myself, this is really challenging. And of course, as Messianic congregation, this is not unfamiliar to, to us because we say it every week, and the Shema is the hallmark of uh, one of the core beliefs in Judaism. But Yeshua, you know, said here, you know, he said, and it says, in, I'll go to verse 28. It says, in 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, recognized, and he had answered them well, and asked Yeshua, what commandment is the foremost of all? Then Yeshua answered, the foremost commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the scribes said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one. There is no one besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as himself is much more, is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So, as I was probing the text as a new believer and I read this challenge here, Yeshua said about loving God with all our being, I said to myself, how in the world, I mean, that, that just sounds like impossible. Like, how do you do that? I mean, I'm not even, I mean, I was a brand new believer, but, uh, you know, it's interesting that God knew that we needed, we need help with this. I mean, he knew that in our own strength and our own desires and our own abilities, we wouldn't be able to even attempt to be able to carry out this commandment. And if you keep your finger there in Mark 12, I, we're going to go back there. Turn back with me to, uh, we're going back in the Torah to Deuteronomy 30, because he told Moses something that would happen and is directly related to how we would carry out, you know, li- loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and as being, as we'll talk more about. But towards the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is getting close to the end of Moses' life. You know, he tells his audience here, or God tells Moses that something is coming. And he tells him that in verse, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 30, verses 1 to 7 here. This is, uh, it says here, uh, chapter 30, verses 1 to 7. It says, so, so, shall, so it shall be when all of these things has come upon, have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mine, in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you today and your sons. 
And then the Lord will restore, Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers Wherever the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and, your, and the heart of your descendants and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict these curses on your enemies, on those who hate you and persecuted you. So it's interesting that God tells Moses that something is coming, you know, down the line. He's saying that God is going to circumcise their hearts. Of course, they have the written Torah, they, you know, they have the Torah, but He's going to do something else, something even greater. He's going to circumcise their hearts so that they can love God with all their heart and with all their soul and that they may live. Now, keeping that thought in mind, fast forward to the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 31. And I know Peter is teaching a class on Jeremiah at MSI right now, and he knows everything there is about this passage. So if you want more about it, go to him. But I'm just going to look at Jeremiah chapter 31. If you go there, you know, it's interesting that When it comes to the New Covenant, there's only one passage in the Tanakh that mentions those those words, New Covenant, right? And that, of course, is Jeremiah 31. Now, there are hints of the New Covenant throughout other passages, little hints of it, but we're explicitly, the only place where explicitly says New Covenant is in Jeremiah 31. And we read here, if you go down to 31 to 34, remember the context is the northern southern, southern kingdoms are divided, right? And God tells them here he's going to unite them under one covenant. And he says here in verse 31, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man to his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their sins, or forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now it's interesting there, we have the the phrase new covenant, and it is about, the context is the two kingdoms being divided, and God's going to take the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he's going to unite them under one covenant, but there's no mention of Gentiles there, nothing, nothing about us who are outside of Israel. And we may say to ourselves, well, of course, we start with Yeshua. You know, Yeshua mentions the new covenant. Uh, we talk about it at Passover, we talk about it in the Brick Shah, but whenever you want to learn about the new covenant, the same old lesson is you go left to right. See, you go back to the left and you go that way. You don't start with the right and go back to the left. And when we start with the Tanakh, we may ask ourselves, well, how do we fit in? I mean, we're not even Jewish. I mean, this is written to, you know, Israel. The two, he's God's going to unify these two kingdoms. Well, the answer is in Romans 11, where Paul says we're grafted in, right? We all know the book of Romans so well. Chris has taught it for years. All of us have studied it forever and ever, and we know everything about it, right? But The point is that we are grafted in. That's how Gentiles get to partake of the new covenant. Even though it was not originally given to us, we get to partake, right? Okay, so the reason I bring this up is, as you go back to Mark 12, is that there is no possible way to even attempt to 
love God with all our heart, soul, and strength if we have not partaken of the new covenant, if we have not come to know the Messiah. And that means that it's not enough just to, uh, we can't love God even if, only if we just believe like God exists, like, okay, there's a God. You know, it says in James chapter 2 that the demons believe that the Lord God is one and they shudder after God, right? So even the demons believe that God exists. So we have to go from believing that God exists to believing in God, trusting him, having that active commitment. It's not just believing only alone that he is God, okay? It's step one, but when we come to know the Messiah, we then have trust, faith in the Messiah. We go from belief that to belief in. And so we have to have what we might just call saving faith, right? We need real, genuine faith to even attempt to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, okay? So we need to know the Lord, okay? And then God begins to work in us to give us a love for him, obviously. Now, um, it's interesting, when you, if anyone's been to college, which many of us have, you know you take a class in cultural anthropology, right? Sometimes learn about the study of humans over different cultures, different time periods. But when it comes to our faith, sometimes we study what's called biblical anthropology, right? The study of uh, what are we? Like, what is a human? What, what does God say we are? What do we consist of? Are we just, you know, are we just like a soul? Are we, uh, what's our heart? All these words we're going to talk about in this text. So I don't want to make this into a cultural anthropology class, but Yeshua, it's interesting, you know, the words, you know, he talks about here, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, soul, everything. It's interesting that it turns into uh, thinking about what we are as humans, the way God has made us in his image. Now, I'm going to break these down a little bit, but the one I want to focus in mostly is heart. And, you know, the Bible mentions heart a thousand times. We know in Hebrew, levav or lev, we know that that word is used so many times in Scripture, okay? And when we look at the heart in the Bible, we know that the heart is used in many different ways, Okay. We know, first of all, that the heart is seen as the center of moral activity. It has to do with our morality and moral issues. That's why when Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it, right? It's related to our moral behavior. Also, of course, the heart is related to our emotional functions, right? We know that Yeshua says before he's going to die, he tells his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled, right? He says, you believe in God, and he talks about the coming of the Ruach. Or we know in passages, it talks about the heart rejoices. We know in Psalm 73, 21, it says, my heart was grieved or embittered, right? So the heart is related to all kinds of emotions we have. And then in some passages, the heart functions as a conscience to us. You know, it says in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 37, he's preaching to his audience, and it says that their, uh, the sermon cut them to the heart. Their hearts, it says that, that the audience was cut to the heart in Acts 2.37. Of course, David prays that God would create from a pure heart to replace his you know, defiled conscience in Psalm 51.10. And then the heart, of course, is related to our wills, our decision-making. We know that it says in Proverbs 16.9, the heart plans and makes commitments and decides. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And the heart is related to our intellectual activity, involves thinking, right? Yeshua says to his audience in Matthew 15, 19 to 20, knowing their thoughts, Yeshua says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Yeshua said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So you see, the heart is used in many different ways, and to be honest, biblically, it's the totality of who we are, right? It's everything, right? That's why Yeshua says, love God with all, with all our, our, our being, okay? Now, when it comes to loving God uh, with all our heart, soul, strength, all our being, we may ask ourselves, you know, well, how does God work this in our lives? Well, if you've ever done uh, any outreach over the years or just you've been around long enough, I know you've probably heard this phrase. You've probably heard the phrase, we need to go soul winning, right? Everyone's heard that, right? We need to win souls. Of course, I still hear it sometimes. Are you, you know, people say it, and I know what they mean by it. It's not, uh, you know, it's not like it's evil or anything. It's just that I know what they mean. But it's interesting that uh, when, when people hear that, Sometimes they think the only goal, of course, is to uh, get someone's soul saved. They go to heaven when they die, right? That's kind of what Henry, I'm sure, has talked about in his, resur- or his uh, heaven class, and I've talked about my resurrection classes, that what we need to understand is that God is interested in redeeming the whole person, right? And what he starts doing when we come to faith in Messiah, he starts to work in these areas of transforming us, right? He starts transforming our mind, he starts transforming our emotions. He starts transforming how we relate to him. He, he just goes after all these areas, okay? And so I thought what I'd talk a little bit about is how he does this. Now, what about the mind, loving God? Let's start with the mind, loving God with all our mind. You know, one commentator says, the way you think creates your attitudes. The way you think shapes your emotions. The way you think governs your behavior. The way you think deeply influences your immune system and vulnerability to illness. So thinking is very important, and you are what you think, right? You say we are what we eat, but you are what you think, okay? Now, our minds are related to, of course, beliefs, what we believe, what, you know, in our mind, our belief system. Our minds are are related to our perceptions and our memories, of course. And we need to ask ourselves, the first step is, what does it mean, you know, to love God with all our mind? Like, what, what's, what's that about? Well, on my stack of books here, which I brought today, my first one today, is Love the Lord, or Love Your God with All Your Mind. Boy, this book really transformed my life early on in my faith, written by J.P. Moreland. He's a philosopher. But, uh, you know, I, I honestly was like, I saw this in a bookstore one day, and I was like, this is years ago. Um, you remember that book? What was that book up? Bookstore up on um, Huntley Road, Cornerstone. Yeah, it's long gone now. I actually knew, knew the owner of that, Jet Hawthorne. But anyway, so I bought this book there. It says, "Love your God with all your mind." I said to myself, "Loving God with all my mind." Like someone wrote a book about this. So I kind of read it very thoroughly and, and critically, and I realized that, wow, like. God really does want us to love him with our minds. I mean, we're created in his image. I mean, God thinks, you know, he plans, he's a, he's a rational being, he created us with an intellect, and God wants us to use our minds to glorify him. But, you know, so how do we do this? You know, what are some of the ways we, first of all, love God with our minds? Well, as I said, one thing it's going to involve is our beliefs. What we believe, how we believe, you know, why we believe. And one thing that we have to do in loving God with our minds is examine our beliefs. Now, the first thing about what we believe is what we believe about God. That is the first thing we need to ask ourselves because we can have a lot of emotional experiences with God, but if it's empty of any content and we don't really know what God we're worshiping or praying to or thinking about, that's pretty dangerous, right? 
And, you know, this day and age, i got to be honest with you. Now, I've been around for a while, but you guys remember the phrase new age, the new age beliefs, right? Everyone was talking about the new age in the 80s or the 90s. It's still around. It's quite popular today. It's, I've, I've researched this, and there's all kinds of people out there that worship uh, a spiritual being of some kind, or they have some sort of spirit in their lives or something, but they don't have any objective referring to it. There's no objectivity. They don't even know what God it is. They don't care. And they just have this experience with this spiritual thing, whatever it is. And that's still out there, but that is not what we do when we love God with our minds. Uh, as far as from a believer's perspective, we don't do that, right? And it's not enough to believe in a higher power, right? I have a family member who says he prays to the Lord and he calls the Lord a higher power. He doesn't talk about Yeshua, but they just say it's a higher power. But that is not what we mean when we worship God. It's, God is not just a higher power, right? So the first step is to think about what we believe about God. And, and so one of the books, first books I read when I was a new believer as well was the classic Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That is a great book. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I didn't know how much there was to know about God. I mean, all his attributes and his character attributes, his moral attributes, all those, the omnis, the omnipresent one, the omnipotent one, all those ones. But I just realized how much there was to know about God, and God wants us to have knowledge of what he's like. He doesn't want us just to, he wants us to move beyond just saying, like, God is love. You know, there's more attributes to God than just God is love. So we have to work on, and loving God with our minds, about our worship of God, of course, what we believe about God and what we know about God. Now, there's another issue about loving God with our minds, and I think this will really minister a lot of us in here because it happens to us all the time, and that involves re-examining our beliefs continuously. Part of worshiping God with our minds is continuously re-examining what we believe. Now, here we go. This is going to be fun. When you come to a Messianic congregation, as you know, one of the first things that happens is you may have to re-examine some of the things you've been taught, right? You're hearing different things. You're hearing, oh yeah, Yeshua was, uh, was Jewish. I mean, I kind of knew that, but now I'm really realizing, yeah, he was like a Torah-observant Jewish man who taught the Torah, and uh, you know, he, he, he gave a message, repent, the kingdom of God is here. He didn't say repent of Judaism. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is here, right? And that can be a big change of thinking just about Yeshua and his Jewish identity. And then, of course, we have to reexamine, uh, you know, the role of, you know, what is a messianic, what is the messianic movement and what is uh, the, the first believers are all Jewish. And look, I have this book right here. See, Paul the Jew reading the apostle as a figure of Second Temple Judaism. I mean, you know, I travel around to some churches, and some people think Paul converted to Christianity and started Christianity. I mean, that's what the consent, the uh, some of the some people think. And you know, sometimes we have to rethink some things. Like, hey, could that be wrong? I mean, it may be painful, but what if it's true? And then, like this book right here, misreading Scripture with Western eyes. Well, I'm a Westerner. I thought that I always read the Bible through Middle Eastern eyes. No, I don't. I'm a Westerner. We all are, right? And so that challenged me in rethinking some things. Maybe I don't read the Bible through the right context. Maybe we need to read it through its original context in a Jewish context, of course. Now, we are so fortunate that um, in Beth Messiah, that of course, we have MSI to help us with this. And another book to the Jew first, The Case for Jewish Evangelism, Scripture, and History. Wait a minute. I thought the gospel, when Yeshua came, the gospel got universalized. It's for all the nations now, and then God's kind of done with Israel. Israel's way over here. See, 
We have to re-examine that. We have to say, well, maybe what is the correct way of thinking is that God's not done with the particular, which is Israel, even though he opened the door with the universal to the nations, they both work together still. Israel and the nations go together. But you see, we constantly have to re-examine what we're being taught, what we believe, and that's okay. That's part of loving God with our minds. Now, you know and I know that when you've taken some of these things I've just mentioned out into the culture, different churches, or to different believers or people you know, and presented these to them, sometimes they just don't want to change their beliefs, right? It's painful for some people. They, it's been integrated in their minds for so long, and sometimes paradigms form, right? And we ha- it takes a long time. It can be a long process for them to rethink things. But if we really want to love God with all our minds, that is part of loving God with our minds to re-examine those things. A couple other challenges we have is that some people, of course, today... Uh, today's culture, one of the biggest challenges, we live in a post-truth culture. And that means that people's feelings or emotions determine reality now, okay? So if you present to them facts or evidence about something, they don't care. They're just like, no, 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 that, I, I don't care. I don't want to look at that. I mean, I feel this way, and that's the way it is. You know, I feel this certain way. My feelings dictate reality. And as sad as that is, that is the culture we live in. Now, I'm not saying everybody's like that, but that is a challenge we have today, of course, okay? But, so the first thing we do, we love God with all our minds, is examine our beliefs and constantly re-examine them and and need to be open to rethink things, right? That's part of worshiping God with our minds. Another way we love God with our minds is that we're sensitive to uh, our perception. That means we're sensitive to our surroundings. Now, all of us... uh, Come to, we, we, you know, we worship God and we, we experience the world through our five senses every day. I mean, seeing, hearing, touching, all those things, smelling, tasting. But when we love God, we real, with our minds, we realize that what we experience out there influences our thinking, right? What we see out there goes into our minds, what we hear, what we, what we taste, what we touch. And we have to be sensitive to our surroundings. Of course, I don't need to tell everybody this. We all know we live in a highly technological age. People are seeing images all day long. Some of those images are forever imprinted in our minds, sometimes uh, good, sometimes bad. But the point is that we have to be sensitive to uh, our senses, okay, and our perception, okay, of things, all right? And so those things play a role in how we love God with our minds. Another way we love God with our minds is to have a discerning mind. Of course, God calls us to use discernment with things. We're called to grow in our discernment. We're called to be able to distinguish truth from error, uh, be able to filter things through our worldview, right? To be able to know when we hear something erroneous and be able to filter that through the word of God. Uh, A mind that's gullible and ignorant is not a mind that is worshiping God, right? We want to uh, be discerning. And of course, a mind that loves God, another way we love God with our minds is to be a lifelong learner. And that is one of the hallmarks of our congregation and MSI is that we want people to be lifelong learners. That's why we offer classes. And I know all of us have taken languages here. That's, a, that's an intellectual exercise. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, but it pays off. And we offer other classes on other topics, but we want people to be lifelong learners. That's part of being a disciple of Yeshua, okay, and learning his worship. And also a way we love God with our minds is a passage that comes up in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 19. And I know that Henry is going to be teaching a class on spiritual warfare, so this might have a little bearing 
on that class. Maybe not. I'm sure he's got plenty to say about that topic. But, you know, there is a passage that talks about what our minds are supposed to be like in 1 Peter chapter 5. And don't move from Mark 12 yet. Keep your finger over there too. But if you go to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter says here that we are to be sober-minded. In verse uh, 6, if you go up to verse 6, he says here, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I'm in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you the proper time, casting our anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit or be sober-minded. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren are in the world. A mind that is worshiping God has to be sober-minded. We have to be on the alert continuously because we know, as Paul says, we don't want to be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, right? Because the enemy seeks to divide and conquer. He divides families, he divides congregations, wherever he does it. But the point is that we need to be sober-minded and alert, right? We don't want to be just kind of caught off guard. That's what happens with most of us. We're just not ready. So we wake up every day, we ask God to give us a sober mind for what's going on around us every day. Also, a mind that uh, is committed to worshiping God, of course, is constantly being renewed. We know that Romans 12, 1 to 2, I'll go ahead and just say it. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Of course, a mind that worships God is constantly needing to be renewed. Now, the the, uh, word for world here in this context means the thinking of this age, right? And we know that the world system around us sometimes is not what, uh, does not represent our value system, right? And so we constantly need to be renewed. And it's almost as the word transform here it leads to that word metamorphosis, right? We read that uh, in the Greek, you know, it talks about a change from the inside out, right? And so we're constantly needing to renew our minds. Now, you know, you may say to yourselves, well, you know, why do you bring up so much these, about these issues with loving God with our minds? Well, of course, everyone is not ignorant to the fact. I mean, by now you know that I, you know, my big field's apologetics, which is getting people to focus on using their minds to love God, of course, their whole being. But, you know, some of the things I've heard over the years are pretty frightening uh, as to why people uh, are just not interested in, uh, you know, providing justification or good reasons for why they believe what they believe. Apparently, uh, one passage they quote is Yeshua says they're supposed to have faith like a child. That passage out of context in Matthew 19, and he wants us to just have faith as a child. And my response, of course, is that that's about an attitude of humility. He's not saying to be just gullible and ignorant, right? He's talking about an attitude of humility. Or, uh, you know, you can't reason anyone into the kingdom of God. You know, the Holy Spirit has to do it. The Ruach has to do it. Well, that's true. The Ruach does have to open the hearts of people, no doubt. But I think if you see uh, just all kinds of passages in Acts where Paul is going in and reasoning with the Jewish people from the Scriptures, you know, he's reasoning with them, using the Scriptures. So it's not that God, uh, you know, bypasses uh, the mind with people, okay? Now, it is true in the fall of man, that our cognitive abilities are, uh, there is some change, you know, the fall has impacted our reasoning, but we still 
can reason. Uh, actually, you know, people can do math and do logic and get degrees and, you know, be engineers and all kinds of things. So they are using their minds, so it's not like they're totally gone. But we know the Ruach, when he gets hold of somebody, he then can use that person's intellectual capacities for the glory of God. And he does that. You know, think about this. How many uh, jobs or degrees have you had to give all of your put in all of your cognitive faculties, all your effort through your mind to get that degree or job, right? I mean, you have to work hard. Some of us in here are accountants and lawyers and, I don't know, engineers and quality controllers and all kinds of things. You had to really work hard, right? And so just think about taking all that same energy and just, you know, ton, you know putting that towards, uh, you know, being a disciple or knowing God or learning about what you believe, why you believe, uh, participating in MSI or something. You can use your mind, obviously, just as much in any other area, right? If you're going to use it for that, or you should be using, of course, to uh, serve God. Now, we're doing that, of course, when we work as well. So the point is that God calls us to love, our, love him with our minds. Now, as I said, the heart is about loving him with all our being, right? The, the mind, everything. What about the emotions? What do we do with emotions? Now, we certainly worship God with our emotions, and we are emotional creatures. We know that God has emotions. We know that he grieves. We know that he's sensitive. We know that when we read the prophets, the prophets are very sensitive to the heart of God. They feel what he feels. They see what he sees. When something, when Israel you know, commits idolatry or somebody sins, they, they grieve over what God sees, so they're very close to the heart of God. We know that the Ruach can be quenched in the New Testament. We read that. We know that Yeshua wept. We know that God certainly is not a stoic rock. I mean, he, he feels things, he experiences emotion, and we have emotions. And God, of course, goes to work in transforming our emotions as well, just like he transforms our mind. You know, the book of Proverbs is full of all kinds of sayings about good and bad emotions. It says here in Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It says in Proverbs eleven two, 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. It says in Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs him down. It says in Proverbs 15, 15, a cheerful heart has a continual feast. It says in Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. So having said that, we can have positive emotions and we can have some negative emotions. You know, sometimes some of us have certain emotions that are destructive. You know, for some people, struggle with anger. Some people, they struggle with fear, whatever it is. But God begins to go to work in that area, and he begins to transform those areas. And sometimes, you know, when we work on what we believe in our minds, we work on our beliefs, that impacts our emotions, of course. So that's that's the relationship that if we're reading, like when I was reading uh, Knowing God Here by J.I. Packer, you know, that led to me, like I had this emotional joy, like I want to worship God more. I know God better now. It created a an emotion of joy and a love for God. So sometimes that happens. You know, we work on our mind, and then, of course, that changes our emotional state. They're directly related to each other. So God wants to transform our emotions so we can love them with our emotions. And then we also love God with our will, of course, because the heart is our intellect, it's our emotion, it's our will. And God calls us to make choices. God has a will as well, as we know. He chose to bring the universe into existence. He made a choice. And with us, God goes to work in transforming our will. And when we are worshiping God with 
our minds and our emotions when we're building our, uh, our belief system, when we're thinking, rethinking about God and our beliefs. God desires that that will change and how we live it out, of course, right? The goal is that we, it impacts, when it comes to decision-making time, that we obey God, right? That's why when we teach MSI or we come here together, whatever we do, we all, of course we want people to be able to apply what we hear, you know? We want people to carry it out in the daily course of life, right? And God goes to work in that area, transforming our wills. He wants us to have a love for him so that we will obey him, okay? But what about loving God with all our strength? It says here, you know, uh, actually in Matthew's translation, it doesn't say strength, but it says here, strength, loving God with all our strength, loving God with all our mind, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. What about strength? Well, Paul says, it's very interesting, and I won't turn there, but to Col- in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, Paul says here, we proclaim Messiah, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Messiah. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. Interesting. Paul seems to be saying that he's relying on the energy of God. The God is energizing him. God is the one providing the strength. And when we pursue God, and I believe that when we really are seeking God and trying to follow God through being a disciplined person, God energizes us. He gives us the energy for him. He gives us a passion for him. He, every day, he is the one energizing us, motivating us, inspiring us through the rock, right? Some days he may not feel it, but he's still there. But the point is that he is the one who gives us that strength. He energizes us for service. He energizes us in everything we do. And if we depend upon him and we call out to him and we tell him we're dependent upon him in humility, he will energize us. Now, what about soul? You know, we get into this issue of soul. It says there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, okay? Okay, so which is it? You know, do I love God? So my heart represents everything I am. It's my mind, it's my emotions, it's my will. I'm already trying to love God with the totality of who I am, but it was like soul over there. And then what about my soul? That's like way over there. Is that part of me? Well, we know in the Tanakh that it's obvious that the Jewish people thought you are a soul, that soul is not necessarily a part of you. It is you, right? And we know that sometimes, uh, then as we move on through the Tanakh, or from the Tanakh into the Brikhat Shah, that there are passages that teach that something, there's a possibility, or whatever you believe about this, that people have different views, that the soul obviously can be apart from the body, you know, depending on what you believe about that. Many, many believers believe that. Some people believe that uh, you just go to sleep, right? And when you die, and you wake up in the resurrection, it just depends. But the point is that, uh, the soul is the, uh, was viewed as uh, the entire you as well. You know, it's interesting. Now, there is an ongoing struggle today in the uh, universities. And if you've ever studied a little bit about neuroscience, and just actually the consensus view in the universities, even without neuroscience, has been like this for a long time, is that uh, humans, uh, there is nothing to us, but we're just matter in motion. That's all, that's all you get taught in university campus, that you're just matter, Okay. You don't have any soul, there's no spiritual world, there's, no, there's nothing outside the material world. That's called materialism, okay? And sadly, many, many college students get taught that they're nothing but matter and motion, okay? Matter made you, 
Uh, matter came in existence the beginning of the universe, and it just made everything, okay? No God, just matter does it all. So sadly, some people believe that, but you know how you uh, challenge that issue? If Yeshua rose from the dead, then guess what? We're more than matter, okay? And that sat- satisfies that issue, answers that thing. So what do we do here with this passage? You know, what we do is when we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, when we're doing that, we know that that will lead us to love our neighbor as ourselves. They are directly related to each other. And, you know, some people try to narrow it down to, you know, someone comes to you and says, what's it mean to follow the Messiah? What's it mean to be a believer? And, of course, some people will say, well, love God and love people, right? Love God with all your being and love people. That's true. We're called to do that. But the point is that we are called to take our love for God, and that, of course, influences how we treat our fellow man. Our love for God is a starting point, okay? So we need to ask ourselves today, you know, can I actually do this? Can I love God with all my heart, all my soul, my might, strength? Can I do all this? Well, we're not going to do that perfectly in this life. I mean, we're, we, we fight our flesh, we fight the adversary, we fight the world system. It's all around us. But with the new covenant and with what Yeshua has done for us, we have the opportunity to love God, and we can do it, and we have to work on it. So the question is, is loving God just an emotion, a feeling, or is it a willful commitment, right? And I would say that they all go together, okay? Mostly it is a commitment, but of course our emotions can influence our commitments, but the point is that we have to work at loving God with all our being. It takes effort, right? I mean, some days you may not feel like uh, pursuing the Lord, right? But if we go back to what we know, what the text says, we know that we are called to go by what we know, not so much how we feel sometimes, okay? And so as we leave today, I just pray with all my heart that we would be able to think about this commandment, think about how God is redeeming us because he wants to redeem the whole person. And then, of course, when we share the good news with others, We want them to know that God is interested in redeeming them, their whole person, right? It's not just redeeming part of them. It's not just redeeming their souls so they go to heaven when they die. It's redeeming all of them, redeeming their thinking, redeeming their emotions, redeeming their wills, okay? God views us holistically, right? And so we want to be offering a good news. The message of the good news is the message that redeems people holistically, right? That's what we want to go for, okay? So having said that, why don't we go ahead and have a word of prayer? Lord, we just want to thank you so much for the central commandment to love God with all our being. We pray, Lord God, that we would be able to take this to heart, and may we realize the Ruach is within us to stir us, to give us a love for you and a passion for you, and to love you with all our being. I pray, Lord God, that uh, we'd realize that we can appropriate this with your help, and I pray, God, that we love people as you love them, of course, as well. And we thank you for this day, that this is the day you've given us. And we thank you, God, for the opportunity to know you through the Messiah. We pray this in his name. Amen.